welcome along to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, we are live from day two of our Sustainability Leaders Forum in London with a relay of exclusive interviews to bring you from the heart of the action. Welcome to this very special episode of our long-running Sustainable Business Covered podcast, an episode brought to you live from day two of ED's Sustainability Leaders Forum at the Business Design Centre in Angel, London. Um, and for non-ED people, well, day two probably doesn't mean anything, day two being Wednesday the 9th of March. I'm ED's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I've taken a few minutes out of the whirlwind that is the afternoon here at the Forum to sit down with our content director, Luke Nichols. Hello. And our content editor, Matt Mace. Hello. First and foremost, how are we, how are we feeling? How are we holding up? I'm, I should mention that we're coming at you from the very end of day two. Um, it's now 25 past four. People are slowly leaving, maybe thinking about having coffee or champagne. Um, how are we feeling? Yeah, I, I mentioned this in the in one of the interviews you'll, that you'll hear in this episode, but usually kind of early afternoonish on on a day two of the forum, you kind of hit a bit of, a, of an energy lull where um, you do just feel tired, and you do feel particularly tired on this on on this forum because it's our first in person two day mm. forum for a long mm. time, so it, it physically knackered, but the energy level is actually quite high just because of the conversations that are being had. It, it feels much more energised than doing these things in front of a screen um, and just this kind of theme of co-creation has really just kind of lifted me a little bit so physically I am I am on my last legs but but spiritually I'm up there did, did you go for a run like you said you were going to go for a run at kind of 6am this morning so I set my alarm got up and my back was just in agony oh, you're like, back. from from uh, uses this back excuse but okay, okay. I should back. preface this by saying that Matt's Karen not, not too long. <laughs> he's not yet 30 he's not an old man if I, you haven't seen him I am I am now gone 30 so I'm allowed I'm allowed that excuse okay. apologies <laughs> and we've we've looked back at um at today but I also wanted to take a moment and rewind in your mind to last night Luke so how was the Better Business Roundtable and, and dinner? Better Business Roundtable and dinner was great it was fabulous I think I mentioned didn't I the end or at the start of yeah. last yesterday's episode the previous episode um, Mike Parry was chairing it um, really interesting conversation we were chatting about it earlier Matt and I because Matt was there as well in regards to this move the shift the required shift from uh, shareholder uh, capitalism to stakeholder capitalism and the role of um voluntary frameworks like B Corp um, and the potential for mandatory frameworks even and, and governance to come in and, um, and drive that further so um, it was an interest it was uh, it was generally a positive discussion I came away from it I don't know about you Matt but I came away from that thinking a lot needs to happen to the organizations that aren't already at the top let's say in, in the B Corp movement in that kind of middle area and the SME area there's a lot of organizations that need pulling up um, but you know, we move into today, Sustainability Leaders Forum, and uh, a lot of the conversations have been about exactly that. So um, this is a long-winded answer, just to say, 
I would echo what Matt says in regards to the feeling coming out of it. I kind of generally feel positive in the knowledge that we've got a lot of organisations represented right across the spectrum, all, all industries almost represented here over the last two days, um, and there's a general feeling that the momentum is almost impossible to not be a part of. Great. Um, so a great look back. And as Luke mentioned, we do have a day one episode of this very special two-parter of a podcast. So do check that out if you haven't um, already. Um, but back to the task at hand, we are going to bring you another jam-packed podcast from another jam-packed day of keynotes, panels, workshops, networking, video recording, being into entourage for Lily Cole, um, <laughs> and somehow trying to sneak some mac and cheese in the middle um, of all of that. But as well as doing all of that, we have another veritable podcast relay um, to bring to you. So I'd like you all to imagine that we're not meeting at four. It's the beginning of the day. We're energised and caffeinated and we're about to start our podcast journey throughout the day. So I hope you all enjoy. Hey, so yes, day two of the forum. Uh, it's just approaching lunchtime and before I um, go off and grab some food, I have rather rudely, I will say, grabbed one of our um, speaker and delegates and stopped them from having lunch themselves. So um, <laughs> Joanne uh, Jidley, founder of Beauty Kitchen, thank you so much for agreeing to postpone your lunch to come and have a quick chat with me. No, no problem. Thanks very much for having me. And um, it'd be great to get a recap um, of your involvement at the forum so far. So you were just on the session, uh, Advancing the Circular Economy, our post-pandemic realities alongside the likes of uh, Aston, Ellen MacArthur, uh, Coca-Cola European Partners, Tetrabax, so some of the biggest operators in that space as well. What were the, um, the kind of key takeaways for you from that session? I w the key takeaways, I think, is I wonder if the larger organisations, the corporate organisations in terms of brands and retailers have realised the opportunity in the solutions that are offered by reuse. I still think that they assume that reuse is quite a niche area when, you know, that's not the world that I personally live in because I think that is the future and it's creating a solution, an opportunity to be able to, you know, think differently about packaging overall no that's definitely true reuse is like this uh, almost in its own little bubble in terms of the circular economy debate for, for some businesses i think yeah because it does reduce their outputs essentially you're, you're you're adding a different layer into the circular economy a different involvement with the consumers at that point and that's not quite there yet but um it'd be great to also get some information about your new initiative the uh, is it is it re or re or so we're calling it re for the moment because re can be reuse refill you know it, it, it adds to the the branding but what we've done is we've created a reusable packaging system specifically for fmcg um, products and we use this for larger brands and retailers and consumers to be able to participate in the circular economy i was on the panel with gail from the ellen MacArthur foundation and one of the things that she said which i loved is we are living in a circular and linear world at the moment and you know those two economies are, are sm getting smashed together and it is causing a little bit of chaos or maybe a big lot of chaos and it's about taking each of those strands of the chaos and straightening it out and joining one end to the other and that's really what reusable packaging systems is about it's around understanding that single-use packaging is now redundant it's now obsolete and there are other options um, out there yeah i think one of the things i take away from form is just how 
obsolete some ways of doing business is just are going to be or, or should be right now and, and yeah that they um that kind of single use packaging is, is, is certainly one. And uh, RE has also been received some funding from UKRI, about £3 million. In terms of the specifics of that funding is going to do, how's that going to help the initiative grow? Well, coming back to um, companies and products and services being obsolete, the one thing that we are not is complete disruptors. We think of ourselves as thoughtful disruptors. It's about taking that obsolescence and using the good stuff from it and bringing it forward into the future. So it's not about ignoring what we currently have, because for me, that would be silly and it just would, it would be wasteful. It's about utilising um, those organisations, the expertise and the people that are within those organisations to help drive the reuse movement. And that's where you know the, the um, grant funding comes into play. We've been given this opportunity to work with partners, brands, retailers, and ultimately consumers to be able to demonstrate what is possible within reusable packaging systems within FMCG. But it's not around ignoring what we previously have or what we currently have. And the consumer point is really, really interesting because, um, like I said at the start, I think a lot of businesses realise that's an extra partnership they have to develop or, or a relationship they have to change. But, you know, we've seen trials across supermarkets that, that refills and return rates are actually quite strong, you know, 95%. Um, so Sarah replied me to some stats here, 95% of customers rating kind of reuse models as good or very good across supermarkets. So in terms of the challenges that you'll find in that are perhaps stopping some organisations to look at the adoption of these type of models. What are the kind of barriers that you're kind of having to, to break down as part of that education piece? So it can be a variety of different things from consumers don't want it, we can't fit it into our supply chain, it's too difficult, it's too costly, um, both in time, money and, and resource. You know, there is a plethora of uh, what I call excuses or challenges that need to be overcome. But because we've been working in this space for quite some time and we've worked with some really large organisations, we have a lot of the solutions and answers but it's not around just having a standardised approach that this is what everyone has to use. It's around being able to personalise that approach depending on what that customer requires. So a large organisation like a Unilever, for instance, their challenges are quite different from an indie brand like Beauty Kitchen. And it's around be having the flexibility and the nimbleness to be able to flex that solution across you know, what size the organisation is. The other challenge is the demand signals, because if we don't have the demand signals in terms of reusable packaging, then, then it's hard to then invest in what the infrastructure needs to be, because the reusable packaging that the consumer gets off the shelf is only the starting point. How do you get it returned? How do you get it cleaned? How do you ensure that you can track, asset track? How do you, you utilise the data? How do you ensure that the, the consumer, the brands and retailers understand the impact? So there's a whole raft of things that ha that we've had to solve but getting the demand signals from much larger organizations and getting the demand signal from a grant means that we are on the right track no absolutely yeah it sounds like the direction of travel is certainly that way which is, which is great and one of the key conversations at this forum and every sustainability forum that i've been to and every sustainability event is collaboration it's yep. still a buzzword it's it, collaboration is probably the meanings changed in terms of what type of collaboration is happening, but yeah. sustainability professionals still very much believe that collaboration is 
crucial driving long lasting change. And as an organisation that's clearly bridged a few gaps there, what are your kind of tips to, to kind of developing long lasting collaborative approaches? So I think this is where having a more circular approach and mindset um, plays a big part in how I approach things. Because we don't just look through the lens of profit, we look through the lens of people and planet. And, and that three-sided network and the triple bottom line is really important to us. And the only way to do that from a, from a reuse packaging system is to collaborate. But, but understanding what you're collaborating on. I, I am a big believer that if someone says, you know, it can't be done, but if I've thought of the solution, then in my head it can be done. You just need to gather those thoughts, leaders and people together to be able to go into action. And I think that's the difference here. For me, when, when I talk about collaboration, it's not about being passive. It's not about giving a podcast and giving advice. It's about come to me and let's actually do something with that and be action orientated. And I think that approach has really been helpful, particularly for other brands and retailers, because we're not passive in our approach. Action orientated is a great a great way of putting it. And I think yeah, collaboration can sometimes just be people around a table discussing things that they would have discussed the you know the last quarter or last year even. Yeah. So that's a great way of putting it. Um, but Joe, uh, I appreciate that um, I am giving you for lunch, and I'm starting to wonder if it's the aircon on my stomach that I can hear rumbling <laughs> away. So I won't hold you any longer. But it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. No, thanks very much for having me. Hello um, and welcome to the next stop on our Whistle Stop podcast tour around the forum. Um, it is now 1.55pm so it's just post lunch um, and just pre Lily Cole's arrival um, and I'm delighted to have put some time in with Helen Wiggs at Share Action who, who heads up their work on investor decarbonisation. So Helen, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks very much for the invitation, Sarah. Really lovely to join an in-person event for the first time in ages. I know everyone's saying that and great to be back um, as, as well. And I understand that you've been in a session this morning with a great panel on green finance. There were also representatives from the Green Finance Institute, Nationwide, Barclays, BSI and OneTrust. So how did you find that session? It was a real uh, interesting mixture of perspectives, I think, and lots of reflections post what had been announced at COP. Um, inevitably, some disappointment, but also post-announcements, quite a lot of reason to be optimistic, particularly from UK perspective and forthcoming regulation. Of course, and I actually wanted to touch on that and start with your reflections on COP26. And there's so many places that we could start at. We could start at forest finance commitment or clean tech finance commitment. But I think we need to start with standardisation, which was a big discussion point um, on the panel, essentially talking about it's all well and good if we have a few trillion here and there. But without standardisation, we won't shift the system. So can I get your thoughts on whether progress was made in that field at or maybe even since COP26 although I know it's been a very disruptive few months. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of where to start and there's lots of clamorings from the investor community and also from the corporate community in terms of standardization and I think we have to accept that we're never going to get the perfect picture from the beginning um, and as is often said perfect is the enemy of the good and we are rapidly running out of time. Um, there are three things though I would highlight from COP that we feel quite encouraged by. So one is the Sustainable Disclosures Regulation. Um, 
Um, this was announced as part of the Treasury Sustainable Finance Roadmap. So part of this new regime will see the FCA develop new sustainability classifications for investment funds and require managers to disclose which category their fund falls into based on FCA criteria. I think the other really interesting part of this is that it also asks for double materiality. And as I mentioned in the section, I think this is important because often we think about um, the climate impacts on funds, but we also need to think about fund impact on, um, on the planet itself. So this is kind of a crucial and quite important change, particularly as we see investors increasingly thinking not only about climate, but also about the other crisis, which is one of biodiversity. Um, the, the other key point I would talk about is transition plans. Um, transition plans are going to be introduced into the UK um, from a comply or um, explain perspective. They're not quite mandatory, though we'd very much like them to be. A task force has been set up and we'll be contributing to um, thoughts on that alongside other members of civil society. Great. I think we all need some reasons to be optimistic and hopeful um, at the moment. And I think a lot of that echoes what was said in that in your session, um, I know that the speaker from BSI Group was talking about how we have to avoid an alphabet soup um, and not go into this just by getting more and more initiatives, but rather remodelling what we've got for good and really following through um, on that. And I wanted to get a view on standardisation and data. Data is always the natural um, follow on. So I wanted to get a feel as we, we often get asked by end user companies who are getting the investment, um, what are our investors looking for in terms of data and is that data good enough as well to please groups like share action as well and you've mentioned some of the things that are coming there so transition plans standardized net zero but also biodiversity um, so what data are you looking for and to what quality yeah, I, I think transition plans is going to be um, a real key in terms of disclosures and I, some investors are already starting to write, I think in, th in terms of their responsible investment policies, a clearer framework of their expectations and, and it's still a very much a work in progress. But I think from a transition point of view, I, the, the top of the list really is that all transition plans are aligned with one, with one and a half degrees and there are short, medium and long term targets. 2050, I think we're all agreed, is way too far off, particularly post the recent IPCC report. So we need to move as fast as possible and every year now counts. Um, I also think we need to see evidence that um, transition plans take into account CAPEX, um, that auditors are climate competent and similarly boards can also demonstrate that they understand the risks involved in, in climate and not planning sufficiently for it. Honestly, the words climate competent boards is something I've written a lot this year, even though we're less than three months in. Um, so I wanted to come on to that, really. I feel like the last time I personally interviewed Share Action was shortly after the 2021 AGM proxy voting season. And that got, for the first time, I think, great coverage in mainstream media in terms of the environmental and social resolutions going through. Um, so it'd be great to look ahead and hear about how your team is preparing for this proxy season. Yeah, it's, it's still very much work in progress, um, but we will be out in force. Um, I think what we're really looking forward to now is finding out what format the AGM season will take um, in the UK, because we're clearly still emerging from a post-COVID world. Um, we still think we've heard from some continental companies that they very much pre prefer to be uh, virtual, that we'd certainly encourage um, at the very least hybrid, if not in-person events, where um, the views of shareholders can be publicly expressed and, and management can see, seem to be accountable. 
Great. Well, obviously, best of luck for what's going to be a busy period, but I'm sure there's never a dull moment for, for you guys. So I better let you get going with the rest of your afternoon, Helen. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Sarah. Great to be here. Um, and great to host you. And I'm now going to be passing the metaphorical podcast baton on to Matt. So yes, afternoon, day two of the Sustainability Leaders Forum. It's usually around this time where my uh, personal um, energy levels start to flag a bit, but the quality of the conversation has been so high that I'm still very much motivated to discuss all things sustainability. And joining me for this uh, conversation, we have Nick Life, who is the co-founder and president of the Green Angel Syndicate. So Nick, thanks so much for making the journey in to come and speak to me. That's a pleasure, Matt. And... Um, I think it's a great place to start this podcast is a little bit about Green Angel Syndicate and in terms of, you know, what it is that you're really focusing on with that company and what it is that you are have set up to try and achieve. Yeah, Green Angel Syndicate uh, is the UK's largest network uh, of sp specialist investors fighting climate change. Uh, our focus and what it's grown out of uh, is angel investment, which is, of course, as you know, investment in startup and early stage companies so it's very very angel investors are very high risk uh, investors um, we uh, in defining uh, our specialist niche as being fighting climate change we concentrate on the areas where we really know something so uh, we actually reduce the risk because we know the markets so so well uh, if we don't know the markets that the companies are, um, are actually commercially active in we, we don't invest in them. So the sectors that we really do favour um, are really the resource use sectors, energy, uh, food and agriculture, water, waste and recycling, natural resources. It's these sectors, uh, and travel as well to a certain extent, uh, it's these resource use sectors that have caused so much harm in the first place, uh, and in, but in the second place, we uh, depend on them to live. We can't do without them. So we have to transition to a point where we're using them in a way that isn't damaging the world we live in. Do you think it's fair to say that um, the, the finance sector has woken up relatively late to, to, to those points that you've just made about the, the harm that the kind of the commodities and the sectors that we were investing in were causing? You know, ED, we got loads of uh, you know, press con contacts and PR contacts from, from brands in particular. We started, you know getting this proliferation of stories from the finance sector around you know some of the big investment banks starting to divest away or issue warnings uh, and then the kind of formation of, of these kind of big financial groups that are focused on sustainability much later than than other kind of uh, sectors so is, is that a is that a is that a fair um, point that, that you've kind of just woken up to it or how would you find the kind of state of the financial market I'm going to take you by surprise Matt um, I I'm uh, strongly of the view that 2022 is the year that we've got to stop being frightened uh, and uh, of sustainability and of climate change and stop treating it as if it's a complex problem uh, that we're all doomed to, to, to suffer from. Uh, and instead, I think it's the, the time to apply common sense and wisdom to get us out of this hole. Uh, and so I'm I'm, I'm be, I've been turning to the proverbs that have supported us throughout our culture and our civilization. And in answer to your question, uh, better late than never. Yes, but of course the financial sector has been slow. We've all been slow. This problem's been building for 30 years. 
40 years. During those 40 years, the problem has got worse and worse and worse because we didn't do anything about it collectively. So to, to actually point the finger at the financial sector, I think, is, is it just doesn't help, you know. Um, the answer is better late than never. Let's, let's all wake up now. Yeah, that's absolutely that's absolutely fair, and and you mentioned as well that kind of angel investing is much more focused on the on the on the the startups. It's a bit riskier. Finance is more kind of uh, historically risk averse, but the, the the area you're focusing on are those kind of the, the startups where perhaps there is a much more element of risk in terms of um, supporting the bazaar. So how you know what kind of um, what kind of expertise and, and guidance are you giving these kind of you know, green, low-carbon, scalable solutions because there's there's massive interest in innovation and in, in sustainability. But actually, bringing those to market, helping them commercialise, and, and giving them the support they need to to start making a difference is, is going to be quite a challenge. Yeah, yeah, you've got it right. You, you you've got it in one. The, the the key point about what we're investing in is that it is predominantly technology innovation, and of course, te- technology innovation is both very difficult, uh, and it is very error-prone because you've never done it before. Uh, and so we're investing in a whole load of companies where people are doing doing things that are changing the processes and the systems we use to generate and trade and distribute and store energy, to, to uh, manage water, manage flood risk, to manage agriculture and the way we uh, treat and grow our food. Uh, all of these different things that we have never done before. And sometimes we invest in process changes, but predominantly we're investing in technology changes. Uh, And of course, it is high risk. I I, I mean, in in, in many ways, the answer to your question is that we cannot, we, we cannot do what the inventors and founders have to do. So we can't provide that core science. They have to be providing it. They have to have identified where it works and how it works. What we can do is provide the specialist skills that help them understand the markets they're aiming it at, how to integrate what they're doing into what other people do in the uh, market sectors that they're aiming at, how to build the commercial basis uh, for what they're doing, and then there are generic skills like how to scale it up, how to finance it, and so on and so forth. So we help them with that. And we've seen over the last few years um, that society is, is really quite fragile at the moment. The, the pandemic hit uh, different parts of society much harder than other parts, just based on aspects of privilege, aspects of geographical location, access to, to healthcare. And we, we've seen the same with the climate crisis. You know, the, the global south is, is much, feeling much more the impacts than developed countries like in the in the UK, for example. And one of the, the key messages that stuck with me, in, and I know we're only three months into 2022, but I had a, uh, an interview with Elizabeth Wafuti, who's the climate, Kenyan climate activist, and she said that, you know, the people on the front line of the climate crisis are, are those that have some solutions right now, and they need support, and they need their voice to be um, heard. And this is a kind of very long way to say how are you kind of ensuring that you are uh, supporting companies of a kind of diverse range of, of voices and companies you know from different backgrounds that have different um, solutions because we've heard at the forum so many times that if you put the same uh, you know the same kind of voices into the room you're not going to get those new ideas you you need to be supporting the you know a diverse range of solutions so how, how are you kind of going about to ensure that there's a kind of real uh, societal equality aspect to the solutions that you're financing yeah I think that's the wrong question uh, and the reason why I think that's the wrong question although it's asked a lot uh, is that um, come on 
what are the last big disasters that have happened owing to climate change in the last uh, in the last three weeks? The storms, the floods, and storms in New South Wales and Sydney. Is that a deprived community? We've got the three storms in succession in the UK. Is that a deprived community? Wake up! This is affecting all of us. Look at the wildfires in California. These are among the most sophisticated economies in the world. Climate change knows no fear and no favour. Climate change is attacking everyone. And to start talking about the equity of climate change and the need to make sure that the um, more deprived communities are brought along uh, and uh, are looked after is to miss the point. The point is that there is too much carbon in the atmosphere, the consequence of which is that the globe is warming, the consequence of which is that the climate is changing. The climate is many different things in many different places in the world and it affects them in different ways. But the very worst place that is, is already affected by climate change and is going to be affected in the next five years, ten years, is India. The second is the USA. Now, you tell me how should we separate one from the other because of arguments about diversity. That is not the point. Look in the right direction. The direction's up in the sky where the carbon concentrations are too great. We've got to reduce them. If we reduce the carbon concentrations in the atmosphere, we stand a chance of reversing the global warming pattern and the climate change patterns. If we don't, we won't. And we'll be, we'll be in a pole here in the UK. London will be flooding. Uh, we'll be stuck in California. We'll be stuck in Bangladesh. We'll be stuck in um, East Africa. These places are already suffering, and, and, and we can see it already, uh, and um, it's foolish to pretend that we can't. But let's face it, in five years' time, the world will look a lot different to the way it does now. In ten years' time, it'll look different still. We've got all of the problems to try and sort out, but the biggest is the carbon concentration in the atmosphere. No, no, absolutely, completely agree. And, and you mentioned that kind of ten years, how different it will look. And, and in terms of that next decade, what is it that you're kind of really hoping to achieve at uh, uh, Green Angel Syndicate? You know, what, what would be a successful decade for, for, for you? Yes. Well, here's another, here's another proverb. Make hay while the sun shines. Now, what I mean by that is that climate change is, in economic terms, the biggest investment opportunity in history, according to much more uh, educated and knowledgeable people than me. Mark Carney said that. Al Gore said it. The reason is because you cannot uh, you cannot transition the entire global economy from a hydrocarbon basis to a non-hydrocarbon basis in double-quick time without investing huge sums of money in the changes in the process of change, as well as the uh, need that we need, the, the need we have to invest in the means of protecting the communities that are worst affected by it. Make hay while the sun shines. So what we've got to do both as Green Angel Syndicate, the only people fighting climate change in our tiny asset class, but also other investment organizations further up the ladder, uh, is we've got to invest more and more and more in the things that really will make a difference to um, reducing and removing carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions and removing carbon from the atmosphere at the same time as investing is in the means of protecting people like the, the inhabitants of New South Wales, you know, if they'd been told a year ago, you are going to get uh, 
your annual uh, rainfall in the space of three days in um, March, in February, March of next year, they would have done something which would have invest, been involved investing money in trying to protect themselves. That's what we've got to do. We've got to, we've got to be investing more and more and more in the things that are going to save us. It's a, it's a gargantuan task ahead of you, and I, I do wish you all the luck. I do know that the tannoys are going off, and I think the, the final session's starting. So, Nick, I won't keep you uh, any longer, but it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for asking, Matt. Thank you, Matt, for that last interview. The podcast baton that we're calling it is now back with me, Sarah, in the afternoon coffee break. And I'm here with Sonia um, from CDP, a long-term friend of ED and their global head of value chains and regional director of corporations. Big job title. Um, and she is fresh from her workshop on supply chain sustainability entitled Building a More Transparent, Resilient and Equitable Supply Chain. So, Sonia, first of all, welcome to the podcast. And I guess we could start by recapping some of your key takeaways from um, from that workshop. How did it go? Do you know what? It went it went really well. There are a lot of people in there who are really passionate about it, who are very engaged. Uh, what they said uh, echoed a lot of what we're hearing at CDP, but they had some really innovative ideas coming through. So we talked about three main things. We talked about challenges to creating that sustainable supply chain. We talked about the opportunities and what's more, what partnerships are going to be needed to secure those opportunities. Now, the challenges, there were threefold. The first one was COVID. The disruption that everyone suffered on COVID, a lot of the people there found that from the sustainable supply chain perspective, people went into lock, almost their own version of lockdown. They're in survival mode. The second challenge that they found is that there's a lot of pressure on businesses now. Sustainability is just one more thing. We're asking about quality, health and safety. There's just a lot going at these, these smaller companies particularly. And so that remains a challenge. And then the third challenge, which made me laugh, since I'm from CDP, is data, data, data. Some people couldn't get enough. Some people found they got too much and what to do with it. Where's that happy sweet spot with using the data and not letting perfection be the enemy of the good? They went on to talk about opportunities, and I'm just going to paraphrase them here, but they highlighted three things that really resonated with me. One is don't reinvent the wheel. There is a lot in terms of purchasing that happened on health and safety, and several of them refer to environment as a new health and safety. Some of them were even using those mechanisms. The buyers already trained on them. It could be integrated into the purchasing processes alongside that, you know, every stage of the purchasing process very easily. The second thing that they highlighted is getting the suppliers invested in your purpose, having a joint purpose. Engaging the supply chain is critical and that the opportunity in having this joint purpose is it really reinvigorates you. And I was actually on a panel with Walmart last year and (laughs) Zach from Walmart, he's the sustainability director, I believe, coined this phrase, which is perfect. It's like, it's like an addiction. Once you've done one thing, once you've measured your emissions, you want to reduce them. You want to go that next step. It's about going on that collaborative journey together. And then they highlighted something around the partnerships about you know partnering with your suppliers being prepared to draw a line in the sand but several of them came to a conclusion we actually came to a couple of years ago which was you've got to get the competitors in the room 
They have to sing from the same hymn sheet. This is the decade of action. We don't have time for everyone to be saying similar but slightly different things. Um, and I've seen the automotives do this very well, you know, coming together and saying, these are the five things. If you supply to one of us, if you supply to all of us, this is what we're expecting. So that's what the feedback I, uh, from the session was. They were, as is always the case with the ED Leadership Conference, the people here were very on the ball. They're thinking forward um, and they definitely represent the, the more proactive end of the spectrum because at CDP we see a whole broad range of companies reporting to us and they would be very much towards that end. Thank you for that very in-depth overview of the, of the workshop. I almost feel like I was sat in there myself. Um, and you mentioned they're talking to companies from all ends of the spectrum, uh, all parts of the journey. Um, and that was pretty obvious in a new report that you guys had out last month, looking at corporate engagement with suppliers on climate. Just to pull out a couple of stats. So corporate requests of suppliers to disclose non-financial info was up 71%. Um, for 2021 on 2020 levels, which is promising. Um, but more than half of the suppliers said they hadn't been set a climate target at all. Um, and more than 97% said their target was not science-based. So what are, you've mentioned some of them, but what are the practical steps that bigger businesses in particular can take to turn that trend around? So I'm going to actually start with the stats themselves. The role of the buyers and supply chain in securing the 1.5 future cannot be underestimated. Business as usual has led us to this problem that we're facing now, this environmental catastrophe that's coming our way. Business as usual has to change. Now there are various people that can make that happen and the buyers play a crucial role in changing global business as usual. It transcends national borders, it transcends COP negotiations. So. The first thing I would say is start talking to your suppliers now, even if you don't have all the answers, even if you're just going to ask them, have you heard of greenhouse gas emissions? That is a crucial step and I can set, tell you right now that the last time we surveyed the, well, in this report, 11,000 11, companies reported, only 38% of them said they are actively engaging with their suppliers on climate change. So just by asking that one question, you're moving from that 62% that aren't talking, they're not building it into business as usual, to becoming part of the solution and building it into the solution. That makes it, I mean, just so it's, we don't only talk about climate change, if you skip to water security, it gets even worse. 16% of the companies reporting said they rep asked their suppliers about water security. Given how much of a problem that's going to be particularly in those really risky regions around the world that that needs to change too so the first thing is talk to your suppliers um, the second thing that I would say is start to build it into the purchasing processes and business as usual you you can't just have it as a add-on anymore. And a lot of the leaders that we've seen, that's the step, that's the differentiator. It's not just the environment team trying to do it on the side. They're going through the mainstream purchases. A lot of the science-based targets, scope three, are being led by the chief procurement officers. They're saying, this is my part of what I need to do for climate. We'll own this, we'll be doing that. Within the report, there is something for anyone that's getting started called the Sustainable Procurement Pathway. We took the decade, well, 15 years of experience that we had working with corporate buyers and tried to create this flexible framework with step-by-steps across a variety of different categories, people, strategy, engagement. So you can benchmark where you are and look at 
where that next soft step is and create your own strategy. It, we taste tested it with over 200 large purchasers, the CDP supply chain members, got their feedback because they've all been on these journeys and they'd all say that they're not perfect. But they took those decades of experience and fed it into this pathway, um, flexible framework. And it could be useful for them. Of course, we'd encourage anyone to go away and look at the full framework. But I did want to talk about something else that's come out a lot over this forum, which is soft skills. So we all need leaders that can talk about science-based targets and can change procurement um, and can change procurement um, patterns and contracts. Um, and you mentioned that the first step is simply to talk to suppliers. Um, so I wanted to talk about that soft skill of communications and how we can better understand our suppliers, engage with them and as well support them rather than just, as you say, adding another extra layer of, of pressure from, from the top. So we've talked about some of the practical steps we can do, but how do we actually go about that first step, that, that talking? Any tips? Yes. If you're right at the beginning, I think the most... There are two things that are daunting. One is a what to say, and the second thing is a who to say it, say it to. The first thing, the what to say, is share your own experiences. If you've gone through, if you've been benchmarked your own emissions, if you tell them about your journey to where you've got to and where you want to go to. I know several companies who started signposting they'd want their suppliers to set SBTs before they'd even got theirs and saying, look, we're on this journey, we want you to get started now to try and build that momentum in the decade of action. So to make it explain how important it is to you, create that common purpose about how they fit in with your, your needs, your climate expectations, your environmental expectations. We know at CDP, and we go back to climate change here, that on average, the emissions in the supply chain are 11 times that of your operations. That's the ratio. If you go up to a retailer, you're looking at 27 times that of your operations. These suppliers, if you want to become a low, you know, a 1.5 leader, you can't do it without them. Let them know that. They want to be part of the solution. They want to impress you. They make sure that you make it personal to you, them, create that common purpose. The second bit is the who. People get stage fright. They talk to the buyers and they're like, we have 11,000 suppliers. Oh my God, I can't have 11,000 conversations about SBTs. Rationalizing that down, start with spend. For most companies, the top 60% of their spend is a, you know, between one to 600 suppliers. That narrows the numbers down quite quickly. And a lot of them have already been doing aspect so you know the what make it personal to you the who start with a small targeted group and build from there I love your style of putting things in twos or threes really easy takeaways for everyone um, but Sonia I know you have a busy afternoon and I'm actually late to go and sit in on Lily Cole's session um, so I better pass the podcast baton over as we wrap up the day thank you so much for your time Sonia thank you for having me it's a great event well, that's a wrap on today's interview relay, and it's a thud back down to earth in the ED room um, at, yeah, gone, gone 4 p.m. on the last day. All three of us, as I've mentioned, have reconvened following the day's event, um, part of which you've just, just heard there. I had thought about writing a very jazzy closing piece here, but I don't think I could do any better than Solitaire's already done um, today. I think I'm also in need of some coffee um, or maybe something 
a bit a bit stronger. Um, I've already asked you guys how you're feeling, but you didn't return the favour. Mm, how are you feeling? We're out of time, aren't we? We'll, <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked, Luke. I wanted to talk about how, yeah, I'd echo what you guys said at the beginning of this podcast, that a conference can be physically exhausting, also mm. mentally exhausting, the amount of information that comes out. Um, but I found it really emotionally recharging. We have such a great community, not just the speakers, but everyone that's attending and everyone that's probably listening of people that are motivated, passionate, willing to have nuanced discussions. Mm. Um, it's just such a great bunch to be surrounded by. So it's sort of it's sort of an energy replenisher. Mm. Um, no, it was fascinating well. to see how much you were rushing around. We were all rushing around, but you with your podcast recorder just uh, rushing left, right, and centre. You've done a stellar job catching the amount of interviews you've done. Thank you. I'll probably have a stress dream tonight that I am a hummingbird or something <laughs> like that. Um, so with that, it's officially time to wrap up the forum and to wrap up this two-part podcast. So a big thank you once again to all of our speakers for making this possible, and thanks to you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode, and we really hope you have, you can stream our previous episodes and subscribe to make sure you never miss another in the future using ED's SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple or Google podcast channels. Our next podcast is going to be a net zero business podcast towards the latter half of March um, as part of our Electric Vehicles Masters series with E.ON. So we'll be welcoming a very special guest from a major fleet operator for that one. And then in April, the Sustainable Business Covered podcast will be back in full force. But I'm afraid that's all the preview I can give you for now. So until then, it's a well and goodbye from all of us here on the ED editorial team. It's a goodbye from Luke. Goodbye. A goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>